0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to join me in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. If you came in and got one of those bulletins in the back of that, there'll be some notes that'll help guide us through our time together in the Word. So Exodus chapter 17 is where we're going to continue as we're walking through the book of Exodus together On Sunday mornings, we're walking through it, looking about what does it mean to be set apart. As we come to the book of Exodus, we see how God takes the people of Israel and sets them apart, brings them out of bondage, and then teaches them what it looks like to be set apart and to be God's people. And by extension, we are looking at that in this current setting and saying, as a church, what does it look like to be set apart? The Bible tells us, even in the New Testament, that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be set apart. We are to be sanctified. And so we are coming to the book of Exodus looking for some principles, looking for some precepts, looking for some pictures of what it looks like to be a modern-day Christian living set apart in the world in which We are in. So as we're walking through the book of Exodus, we have seen how God has revealed himself to the people. And we've also seen how God has then shown the people, this is what it looks like to then follow after me, to be set apart to me, to be obedient to me. And so he's been showing himself to the people, he's been showing the people to the people, and he's been teaching them what does it look like to follow after him. If you were to go and to try to get a commercial driver's license, depending on the type of commercial driver's license you're going to apply for, at one point through the testing, you might have to go through a a series of testing on. Air brakes, And so you go through this pre-trip exercise, if you will, and you are there at the piece of equipment that you were being tested upon, and they say, okay, you are now going to test the air brakes. And there's a whole procedure, according to the book, that you have to follow to test and to make sure the air brakes on the vehicle you are in, that they are functioning correctly. And as you're going through this process, and you're pumping the brakes, and you're checking this, and you're checking your gauges, and you're doing all these things to be able to make sure that your air brakes are functioning correctly while you, as the individual applying for the license, while you are testing the air brakes. There's a tester, an observer, whatever you want to call them, a proctor if you will, whatever they want, somebody that is there watching you and they are testing you to see if you are doing the test correctly. You see, sometimes in life, we start to think that we are testing God or we are testing our our understanding in a situation when really, in actuality, God is testing us. And in this passage here in Exodus chapter 17, it looks as if the people are coming to God and are testing God. But as we will hopefully see at the end of it, the people are not testing God. God is testing the people. And there are so many times in our lives that we find ourselves in a situation where we are coming to God and we're saying, God, I need you to prove yourself faithful. God, I need you to prove yourself true. God, I need you to show up. And we might think that we are testing God, but in all reality, God is just testing us. Now, these tests come in a variety of ways. Of scenarios. Sometimes they come as a difficulty in life. Sometimes it comes as a challenge in life. Sometimes it comes as an os- obstacle in life. Sometimes it comes wrapped in suffering. And sometimes it just comes as what we might consider to be a trial. So we face these moments in life, these trials that come. How do we respond? Well, in Exodus 17, we get a picture of how the people respond and if you have your notes there in front of you or if you want to take notes this morning as we're looking here at Exodus chapter 17 I want us to look at these first seven verses and I want to look at these trials that test us and as we go throughout this passage I want to point out to you some trials that stick out some trials that the people of Israel were facing and I think I hope I assume by extension these are trials that you and I are facing as well today and the first trial that we want to see here out of Exodus 17 is in verse 1 and it's the trial of our flesh the trial of our flesh. Now, if you remember the setting, and if you remember where we're at in the story, the people have left Egypt. They've already crossed the Red Sea. They got in the, in the wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula, if you will. They're making the way down from the Red Sea all the way down to Mount Sinai. And they're going to get down there in Exodus 19 where we're going to see the Ten Commandments. And so they're, they're on their way down there. But as they leave, and they leave the Red Sea. Remember, they go three days They go three days in the desert, they didn't have any water. And they said, oh, there's some water here, but it's bitter, and we can't drink it. And so Moses threw the log in the water, the water became sweet. A few days after that, then they said, now we're hungry. And if you go back to Exodus 16, you see where God said, okay, I'm going to provide quail, and then I'm going to provide manna. And at the end of Exodus 16, it says that all the people of Israel ate manna every single day for the next 40 years until they move into the promised land. So here's the scenario that it sets up. We don't know exactly at, at date on the calendar. I can't say that that was Sunday and now this is Monday. But the picture is as they are moved. If you look there in verse 1, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So here's how Moses, as he is giving us this narrative, this is how this looks. The people are camped, and you, if you go back and you read in scripture, what would happen is, is that during the day there was a pillar or, or a cloud type figure that would lead them in the direction that God wanted them to go. At night there was a pillar of fire, and so when the, when, when the cloud, during the day, when the cloud would get up and move, the people would move. And the cloud stopped, the people stopped. And when God would then say, I want you to move, I want you to stop. I want you to camp, I want you to be uh, in, in transition. And so God was the one that was directing them. So it tells us there in verse 1 that God was then directing them. So whatever God said, God said go to the right, they went to the right. If God said go to the left, they would go to the left. And in the midst of this, in verse 1, you see the people, and they're following the direction that God had told them to go. And it says they got down there to Rephidim. God said, you're going to camp here at Rephidim. But then what does it say at the last part of verse 1? But there was no water for the people to drink. It sets up here in the story, it sets up a deja vu if you will, going all the way back to Exodus 15. This idea that when the people got there, they the first thing that Moses has said that they noticed about the place was there wasn't anything to drink. Not about you, but I sometimes wonder why would that be the first thing they would talk about? They wouldn't talk about the, the mountains, they wouldn't talk about the valleys, they wouldn't talk about the trees, they wouldn't talk about the soil, they wouldn't talk about the climate, they wouldn't talk about the presence of God or the absence of God, they wouldn't talk about anything. It was like the first thing they pointed out was the fact that there was not water. One of the commentaries that I read talked about that in, in this particular area, and it's hard for them to nail down exactly that this is the exact location from the Old Testament to the current time, but they said that general location that there were these wadis. Anybody understand what a a wadi is? If you go over to Africa, you'll have these wadis. And what these wadis are is during the winter, during the rainy season, they become streams. They become creeks. Creeks. They become rivers. They become whatever you want it to be, and they become what they carry the water. But during the dry seasons, they dry up, and so it's just like a dry riverbed. So one commentator said is that most likely when the people they get there to them, and they find themselves there and they see all of the what would look visually as all the evidence of water would be there, and yet when they get there, there is no water. And so that's why they said there was no water. Another idea is that when they get there, the only thing they are focused on is them. Now, obviously, there is no water in the area. That's not a misrepresentation. That is not a lie. But yet, when they get there, the only thing that people are concerned about is water. It's like they had a hotel Mentality. You know what I'm talking about when I say hotel mentality. You're on the road and you're traveling and you get to a place that you're going to lodge at for the evening. And you go up and you pay the person the money. And used to they give you a key. Now they just give you one of those cards. And now you go up to the room and you open the room. What is one of the first things you do when you go into that room? You're going around and you're feeling the bed, you're feeling the pillow, you're going around and you're looking and you'll take those blankets, you'll throw them back looking for some type of residue in the bed, any, any kind of bugs, any kind of stain, any kind of thing you don't like. You go up and you look at the thermostat and you'll mess with this thermostat. The whole thing you're doing for the first 10 minutes in your room, all you're doing is judging and looking at all the things that you don't like. Sometimes we do that with things of God, Amen. Sometimes all we do is we wake up and the first thing we do is we don't think about the way that God has provided or the way that he is taking care of us or the things that he is putting in front of us that we do not deserve. The first thing we do is we walk into life with this hotel attitude and all we're doing is looking at all the things that we do not like we come here in verse 1 of chapter 17, it's like the people and they get down to Rephidim. Remember, this is where God told them to stop. Remember, this is where God told them they would camp. And all they want to do is focus on what they didn't like. I want to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, that sometimes comfort and satisfaction can be unappeasable idols. If all you and I are doing is looking around and saying, what makes me happy, what makes me comfortable, what makes me satisfied, what brings pleasure to me, and what do I like, and what makes me feel be be at peace and be relaxed. And if all we're doing is worrying about what matters to you and your comfort and your satisfaction, they will be idols that will never be enough. So the people get here in verse 1. Chapter 17, and they get down here and it's like their flesh is a trial. They get down there and all they can think about is we have no water. They're not concerned about the things of God. They're not concerned about the presence of God. They're not concerned about the spirit of God. All they are is focused on is what is wrong. And oftentimes the physical will trump the spiritual. Which is why we have to be careful about how we face these trials of the flesh. in this room, there are some people right now, there are some people at this very moment, and you're warm temperature-wise. You're warm, and and you're like, does the air conditioner not work? Golly, what's going on around here? You're warm. Some of you are having hot flashes, but some of you are just flat warm. There's some of you who are looking for a blankie because you're cold. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh my gracious, they got like a cooler in here. You can hang meat in here. You're just cold. And all you're doing is thinking about, and you're shivering, and you're like, well, at least they'll keep me awake because I won't be able to keep my teeth. And all you're doing is thinking about how cold you are. You see, even in this room, there is a wide diversity of preferences. The problem is, is that when those preferences become priorities, when those priorities become idols, when those idols become rebellion against God. So you get here in chapter 17 in verse 1, and the people get down there where God told them to camp at Rephidim, and the next thing you know, their flesh becomes the first trial that they have to face. And many times in our lives, and many times in the, daily day, the day-to-day grind, we find ourselves always battling our flesh. And there's another test that comes in verse 2. It says at the last part of verse 1, but there was no water for the people to drink. So then what does it say in verse 2? Typical Israelite people. Therefore, verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people are coming to Moses and they notice they did not say, Moses, have you noticed it's a little bit dry? Moses, have you noticed we're a little thirsty? Moses, have you noticed we do not have any water? No, what do they do? They immediately come in the way that it gives in the text. They quarreled with Moses and said, demanded, give us water to drink. I submit to you this morning that when it comes to the tests and the trials in life, not only are we constantly faced with the trial and the tests of our flesh, but we're continually tested and tried with our reactions. With our reactions. our reactions. It's not a matter that it was a sin that they didn't have any water. God doesn't resent it as if it was something wrong or something as a fault of theirs or as a discipline tactic or chastisement or God was gonna get even with them or God was mad at them or God was going to mistreat them. No they found themselves in a place with no water and yet their flesh flared up but then the next thing they had to face was is how would they react? And here in the text We see the way they reacted. They reacted with griping and demanding. All they are focused on is what we don't have. All they are focused on is what they wanted to have. All they are focused on is me, 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 me. And I put there in your notes that oftentimes our flesh is louder than our hearts. Oftentimes our flesh is louder than our hearts. All we're doing is thinking about what I want and what I didn't get, and I'm going to make sure that I throw a fit until I get what I want. Never been to the Black Friday sales at 10 p.m. on Thanksgiving night. They could, sure they call that Black Thursday because it's actually on Thursday, but it actually started early, fri- early Friday morning. But, I, but I've never been to those sales. But I've seen lots of videos, right? I, I've seen lots of videos of where they get there, and it's like survival of the fittest. You get there, and it's all about who can beat the other one, who can make the biggest scene, who can make the biggest rah-rah, who can make the biggest horse's rear of themselves. Those are the ones that get the deals. And what do we see here in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 2? The people come to Moses, and they don't ask a question. They don't raise a, a, a curiosity. They come to Moses and say, Moses! Give us water. You ever do that with God? You come to God and you say, God, I deserve this. God, I'm owed this. God, why do they get that and I don't get that? We start to come and we start to let the flesh begin to take over and the flesh begins to control and the flesh begins to drive Attitudes and begins to drive our priorities. The next thing you know, that our our flesh then begins to inform our reactions. And here in the text, that's what they do. They come to Moses and they just simply say, "We want." something to drink. And, and you notice here, it's like as if they demand that it is Moses' responsibility to provide the water, and it's God's responsibility to tell Moses how to get the water. And so many times I put there in your notes that we are quicker to jump to conclusions than patience. They come to Moses and say, Moses, hey, we need something to drink. Would you go ask God for us on how we're supposed to find something to drink? No, they don't do that. They don't come to Moses and say, hey, Moses, we're here. This is where God wants us to be, but how in the world are we supposed to then take care of our families? No, they come don't come do that. They don't come with a state of patience. They come with a state of judgment. And Brothers and sisters, so many times we come to God and we are quick to jump to judgment on what God is doing or what God isn't doing or what God should be doing and our actions reveal our hearts. Our actions reveal our flesh. Our actions reveal truly who is driving our lives. Our reactions. Our reactions of how we respond, our reactions of how we react, our reactions. And it's a trial, it's a test that comes along. And here in the text in chapter 17 in verse 1 we see the trial of the flesh. And in verse 2 we see the trial of their reaction. But then in verse 3, notice Moses looks at them and says, why do you test the Lord? Why do you quarrel against me? This is verse 2, the last part of verse 2. And then in verse 3, listen to what they do. It says, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? He is, the people are looking at Moses and saying, no, Moses. We want water. You give us water. They can, it says it again there in verse 3 that they grumbled against Moses. Not only we deal with the trials of our flesh, we deal with the trials of our reactions. But then we deal so many times with the trials of our expectations. Of our expectations. So much of bitterness in life is because of misplaced expectations that were not met. You know, sometimes you walk into that motel room and you have this expectation. You think, by gosh, if I paid $35 for this motel room, it better be a nice motel room. You used to. You used to do that. Not anymore. Not anymore. If you paid $35 for a hotel room, you know what you're getting. <laughs> but the idea that you and I come in and we're like, well, uh, by golly, if I did this and that's what I want. And we build up Expectations. If you say, hey, pastor, we're going to take you to a five-star restaurant and we walk in and there's a big statue of Ronald McDonald sitting in the foyer, my expectations will not be met. But we build up these expectations, and when you and I get these expectations, whether realistic or not, then you and I start to respond and react and live off those expectations. And when those expectations aren't met, then we get discouraged, and we get bitter, and we just get grumbled, and we're looking for somebody to blame for our unmet expectations when we were the one that developed the expectations to begin with. So here in the text, in verse 3 of chapter 17, the people are looking at Moses, and they have these expectations. They went to Moses and said, Moses, and this is verse 1, there's no water. Verse 2, they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water. Then Moses, at the end of verse 2, said, I- I'm not God. Why are you testing the Lord? But the per- then verse 3, the people are like, oh, no, no, you didn't understand us. We said we wanted water. Remember, some years ago, they may even still be on TV. It's been a while since I watched regular television, but there used to be these commercials. J.G. Wentworth. Remember those commercials? And they were all about the fact that you were owed some type of settlement. You were getting some type of payout on that settlement. But that was your money, and you wanted your money now. And the whole crutch of it was you go to J.G. Wentworth, and they will get you your money now And the idea that they said they were trying to instill is, you should get what you want now. In other words, we deserve it and we want it now. Come to my house. Our house. Come to our house. There's a two-year-old. This two-year-old is just learning how to develop communication with words. <laughs> so sometimes it's dink, sometimes it's dink. Sometimes it's some variation of that, but that two-year-old will come in the kitchen and be right there next to the fridge, and he knows that in the fridge is his sippy cup. And he knows that he wants that sippy cup. So he looks at somebody that is tall enough to reach the sippy cup and has the power and the muscle strength to open the door to get to the sippy cup, and he'll look at that individual and he'll say, dink. Now, you and I are reasonable people, and we understand That if that sweet, black-hearted, little, wretched sinner doesn't get something to drink for 30 minutes, he'll still be okay, right? We understand that if he doesn't get something to drink for 45 minutes, he's not going to be physically harmed. We understand that there is not an emergency where he has to have something to drink right this moment. But that's not the attitude of the (laughs) two-year-old. The attitude of the two-year-old is, I said I wanted a dink, and I want a dink. And if you don't get me my dink, I'm going to sit here and put it on auto-repeat every five seconds. I want my dink, 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 dink dink, until you get me my dink, I'm going to sit here because I have expectations that you do what I tell you to do, and you're going to do what I want you to do because I'm the kid and because I have the power of annoyance. But when you see that being played out, what is going on? That two-year-old has an expectation, and that parent or that adult or that older sibling in the room realizes that you know what I can meet that expectation later or you know what they don't need that expectation right now in that position of maturity and in that position of a wider view of what is going on in the season of life you have a different perspective on what is going on than that two-year-old does and yet that two-year-old the only thing that two-year-old is thinking about is that one sippy cup and what they want to dink The people here in Exodus chapter 17, all they could think about was they wanted a drink of water. And all it was was not, God, what are you doing in this moment? God, how are you teaching us in this moment? God, how are you going to provide for us in this moment? God, how we can be faithful in this moment? God, what do you want us to do in this moment? God, maybe you have something else in mind in this moment. God, no, no, no. All they were thinking about is what I want. My expectations. We've got to be careful. Because we will sometimes develop and possess expectations that are not realistic. And expectations that we are imposing upon other people. And when those other people do not satisfy and meet our expectations, then we use that as ammunition to find fault and to hold a grudge against other people because we're starting with unmet expect our unrealistic unfounded unreasonable expectations So here in chapter 17 and verse 3, the people come to Moses and they say, oh, Moses, you don't understand. We want water. You have to give us water. Now, what are they probably thinking about? They're probably thinking about back in Exodus chapter 15 when they come and the water is bitter and they go to Moses and say, hey, Moses, we need to do something about this. Moses says, roger that. He goes to God. God says, take the log, throw it in the water. The water water turns sweet and everything's great. So you can imagine the people might be thinking that's what we got to do. We go around there and we just start chewing on Moses' ear. Moses will go get a hold of God's ear and then God will take care and we will be satisfied the problem is, is they forgot they do not control God and there's sometimes we start to think God answers to us and we start to think God because I prayed about it therefore you have to do something about it oh God I mentioned it and I put it on a prayer request list so now you have to take care of my problem Oh God, I came out of a doctor's office and I got bad news, but God, because I'm a Christian and because I love you and because I go to church, now you have to handle this. And we start coming to God with these expectations, and we start coming to God with these unrealistic expectations, and then when we don't have these expectations, man, what do we do? We get mad at God. And here in the Texas, what they're doing, they're coming and they're saying, oh no, 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 we will get what we want. And there's a trial that comes into our lives when our flesh and our, ex- and our reactions and our expectations are all not focused and not centered upon God. But then there's another trial. The fourth trial we see there in the text starts in verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. You may be reading this story, and you may say, Oh, well, what's the problem? There's not a problem. If the trial, the test comes in is that God has answers. The question is, is, do you like his answers? You see there, he, Moses goes to God there in, in verse 4 and says, God, help. They're getting ready to stone me. They're getting ready to mistreat me. They're getting ready to abuse me. God, what do you want me to do? And God says, hush. Gather up some of the leaders. Walk over here to this rock. Take the same staff that you use when you beat the water in the Red Sea and divide a part of the water, which many people think would signify the presence of God. Go to the rock, hit the rock. When you hit the rock, the water will come out, and over a million people will be able to get a drink. Now, I don't know what kind of rock this was. I don't know if it was like one of these rocks right here. I don't know if it's a pebble. I don't know if it's a big boulder like you find. in other. Pl- I don't know what kind of rock it was, and I don't know how what kind of uh, the, the, the hydraulics of the water coming out of the rock. I just know that he hit the rock, water came out, and the people got a drink was well, not that good news? Yeah, that's good news. But what does that mean? That means that God has an answer. That God has an answer. The problem is the people weren't concerned about the answer of God. The people were so concerned about the satisfaction they could get from God. They weren't looking for God, what is your answer to this problem? God is, what is your solution to this problem? They just wanted to say, God, we want you to satisfy our desires in the problem. And so you see here in verse 4 down through verse 6 that you see God gives his answers. Not only does God have a plan, but God has a purpose. God knew what they were needed, and God knew how he was going to provide for their need. And yet, so many times we start looking and saying, I'm not interested in God's answer. I want my answer. You ever get to that season of life? That you say, God, I'm going to tell you what I need and I'm going to tell you how I need it and I'm going to tell you what I want it to look like when you bring it to me. And we start getting so precise that we're not concerned about God giving us His answer even though we realize that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives, and even though we realize that God's in charge of his life, and even though we realize that God knows what's going to happen five years from now in our lives, and even though we realize that God has a greater perspective, a more perfect perspective than we could ever have about our lives, and yet we go to God and we are not satisfied and willing to accept God's answer because we already have an answer that we want. Brothers and sisters, so many times the trial and the test comes is will we accept God's answer? Once upon a time, family gatherings, especially in the wintertime, the box of jigsaw puzzle would come out. I realize that some of you in this room may not have any idea what a jigsaw puzzle was. Is if you take a big picture and you cut it up in a bunch of little pieces and then you shuffle the pieces all together and you dump them in a box. And then somehow they think it's a really cool thing at a holiday to get that box out and then to try to put the pieces all back together to make it resemble the photo. When you get ready to do the jigsaw puzzle, you already know what the picture is supposed to look like, right? The picture is on the box. Now, if you did it the way I did it growing up, you always take the picture and you always set it up there on the side. And then you have all the pieces that are strung out there along the card table. And if you're really expert level, you got the 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. And you got it set out there and you got the picture up. And what is the first thing you start doing? Corners and borders, that's right, corners and borders. I've got some jigsaw people in here, okay? So you go corners and borders, and then you start looking for color. You start matching color, right? And if that's a really wicked jigsaw puzzle, like three-fourths of it is sky blue. I don't know why they sell those things. They should burn those things. But it's the idea. it's the idea that you already know what the picture is, but what is the point? The point is the process of putting the puzzle together. Now imagine God. God knows what the picture of your life is going to be. God knows what the final picture is going to be. You and I have no clue. And so why not trust the person that sees the final picture to tell us how to put the pieces together? And yet we come into God and we start saying, oh, God, we're not willing to take your answers. God, we're not willing to accept your plan. God, we're not willing to accept your purpose. God, what you say is not enough for us. And so the people here in the text, not only were they out of water, and so they began to respond in the flesh and they reacted in an incorrect way. They had expectations. And then even when God said what to do, it's like, who cares? Why? Because what does it say there in the text? Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you therefore on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people, and the elders of Israel, or, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I don't want to try to add to what the Bible doesn't put in there. But you know something that I think is just screaming out of the page that is absent in the text? is the people saying thank you. The people showing gratitude. It doesn't say anything about the people who were overjoyed and they said, Oh, this is from the Lord. Oh, we were so dumb. We were so foolish. How could we have ever guessed and second guessed the Lord? No. It's like Moses is writing. It's almost like the, the, the imagery I get in my head. And please, I'm, I'm not saying this is what the text says. I'm just saying this is the imagery in my head. It's like as if Moses hits the rock and the water comes out, and all these people gathered up and said, It's about time. Took you long enough. There's no word of gratitude, there's no word of thankfulness, there's no word of humility, there's no word of submission. What does Moses say about the scenario? In verse 7, he gives us the last trial that we often are tested with in life, and that is the trial of our faith. The trial of our faith. Look back up there at verse 7, how Moses writes. It says in verse, the last part of verse 6, and Moses did so in the sight of the dwellers of Israel, so he, he struck the wa- rock, the water came out, but then instead of Moses focusing on what the, how the people responded, no, what does Moses focus on? It says and he called the name of the place, or he called the name of the place Masa, which masa means grumbling, it means discouragement, it means being unhappy. Maribah means to tempt or to test because of the quarreling of the people. So he comes in and he names this place, he renames this place because of the people's attitude. And so what is Moses highlighting? Moses is not highlighting the gratitude or the thankfulness of the people, he's highlighting the lack of faith in the people. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It says there in verse 7, because they tested the Lord. You look back up there in verse 2, at the last part of verse 2, when Moses is responding, and he says, Why do you test the Lord? It's as if the people are coming into this scenario of life, and they're going to come, and they're going to say, If God is real, then God, you do this if god is real then you must do that and so many times in our daily lives whether we do it that dramatic or not we are like gideon we put out the fleece and we come to god and say god we have something we want you to do and we test god and yet we don't understand and we fail to realize that oftentimes the testers were the ones being tested Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, there in chapter 17, or or chapter 17, twice, it talks about the people testing God. But where is that idea of testing found elsewhere in the recent passage? We go back to chapter 16 and verse 4. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and all the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. After he turns the water sweet, God makes them a deal there in chapter 15 and verse 25. And it says, The Lord made them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in your eyes and give ear to the commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. What are you trying to say, Spence? I'm trying to say that so many times we face trials, we face obstacles, we face times of doubt, we face times of grief, we face times of sickness, we face times of uh, of sorrow. We face these times because God is using them to test our faith. And how many times do we face obstacles in life that it is not about our flesh, it's not about our reactions, it's not about our expectations it's about our faith in God and here in the text you get to chapter 17 and that's what God is doing now God is, God. come in and say let me tell you Moses, let me, let me pull you over to the side Moses, let me tell you what all this is all about no he doesn't do that, but what we see God doing is God was able to provide the water from the rock at any time God knew when he stopped him at Rephidim what was going to happen God knew when the water was not there, what the people were going to do. God knew what He had told the people he'd do. God knew what he had already showed the people to' do. God knew everything that he had already done in the people. He was just waiting to see what the people have faith in Him. Just think about it. The people get there late at night and refer him. Moses says, all right, we're going to stop here, we're going to camp. And so all the people, they load their animals and they set up their tents. And you can imagine the family, this is just all my paraphrase. You can imagine the families, they're tired and, and it's late at night, it's already dark. And they, and they get there and they bed down for the night. And you're that good Hebrew father. And you get up in the morning and you got your coffee or goat's milk, whatever they drank. And you get up and you get to the edge of the, the door of your tent. And you look out, what do you see? Manna. Because at this point, God was providing manna every single morning. And you get up and you walk out of your tent and out there, remember it talks about looking like the dew and as the dew would lift and the manna would be left in its place. And you get out there and you, and you go down there and, and there's the, the manna that's all over on the ground. It's that fine little wafer looking thing that tastes like honey. So you got your coffee, your goat's milk, and you go out there and you break you off a piece and you're sitting there and you're eating and you're like, oh man, this is good. This is a good life. See, back in Egypt, I'd be hauling clay for bricks about this time. Or back in Egypt, I would be waking up to the sound of people being beaten for not making their brick quota. Uh, About this time, I'd be watching my kids leave to go get the straw and get the materials. And here I am, a lot of care in the world, got my coffee. I got my manna. He's sitting there and he's eating the manna. Finishes the goat milk. Keeps eating some manna. And then he's like, I'm thirsty. I want something to drink. And you think up to this point, the reason why he's at where he's at geographically is because of God. The reason why he is coming out of the door of his tent is because of God. The reason why he has any possessions is because when he left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them all of their possessions just to get them out of their way. He's eating the manna off the ground because God had provided it. He's drinking the coffee or the goat milk because God had provided it. Everything he had was because God provided it. And yet when he gets thirsty, none of that matters. Because all he can think about is what he demands of God these trials will come to us these temptations will come to us this testing will come to us our flesh will be tested our reactions will be tested our expectations will be tested our answer God's answers to us will be tested our faith will be tested And in those moments, we might think that we are the ones doing the testing to God, but in the reality, in the greater scheme of things, God is doing the testing to us. So then how do we take this passage, these verses here in chapter 17, and look at them through the grid of the three core values of this church? Three core values being building families, teaching the Bible, and being the church. How, how do we look at this text in light of the core values of this church? They're at the bottom of your notes. I just got a few more, a uh, few more ways that we can incorporate this, and we'll be done. The first thing is, is that faith is demonstrated in the home. Faith is demonstrated in the home when we think about building families, when we think about to build families, when we think about that the family is at the center of what we should be doing as a church is to strengthen and to nurture and to lift up the family, we understand that this faith, you can come in here for one hour a week and you can be the most faithful person in the world. But the reality is, is your faith will truly be seen in who you are at home. Your faith is demonstrated at home the people here in exodus chapter 17 they were showing who they really were when they got thirsty and by extension so many times you and i are who we really are when we are at home so husband father mother wife grandma grandpa the best demonstration we can give to our children of how to trust and to have faith in God is to show them not just on a Sunday morning, but to show them on a continual basis because faith is demonstrated in the home. And not just that, but then also think about the second part of this is that they didn't need water. When we think about the idea of teaching the Bible, why do we want to prioritize teaching the Bible? Because the Bible teaches us and the Bible shows us that the people didn't need water. The people Needed faith. Well, no, Spence, that's not true. The people needed water. Yes, they needed water, but they couldn't produce water. They couldn't make water. They couldn't uh, create water. They needed faith that God would provide for them what they needed. You don't need a clean bill of health. You need faith in God. I'm not saying that God's going to heal you. I'm just saying that in a thousand years from now, it's not going to matter what physical ailment you have today. What's going to matter in a thousand years is the condition of your soul and the state of your soul. We don't need a new government. We need to have faith in God. We don't need more money. We don't need more wealth. We don't need all the things that we think will make us happy and solve our problems. We need faith in God. And so when we come and we teach people the Bible. What we're teaching them is how to have faith in God. God. In the text, the people are only focused on the water, and that was the fleshly representation. What God was waiting to see is did they have the faith to wait on Him. And then this last one. How do we look at this passage and use it to be the church? This is a phrase that I don't pull out of a chapter or verse. It's a phrase that I heard from someone a long time ago. But the phrase goes like this. If it's God's will, then it's God's bill. What is meant by that phrase is, is, if God tells you to do it, then God can take care of equipping you to do it. So here in Rephidim, the people get there, and this is Exodus 17 and verse 1. The people get there, and it says, there's no water. And you think, oh, man, God, you messed up. God, you navigated them there, and all of a sudden they don't have water. No, no, no. No, if that's where God wants them to be, then God can take care of making sure they have what they need. You see, if they're just where God wants them to be, and they're just right in the middle, and the center of the will of God, then God can take care of the providing. He can take care of the timing. He can take care of the equipping. If it's God's will, then it's God's bill. Now that's a phrase that has so many applications in so many different circumstances even inside this room. Because the question is not what do you want to do. The question is not what can you afford. The question is not what would you would like. The question is not what someone else is doing. The question is not what you would prefer. The question is what does God want. And if we will focus on what is God's will for our lives personally, what is God's will for our lives corporately, what is God's will for our lives as the people of God, then we don't have to worry about money or building or budgets or education. We don't have to worry about all the details that usually bog us down and keep us from being faithful. All we have to do is ask the question, what is God's will, and then trust that God will then take care of the bill. And I'm not trying to do any naming and claiming. I'm not trying to do any prosperity type of thinking. I'm not trying to tell you if you just believe enough, then God will handle it What I'm telling you is, is that so many times we get the questions backwards. We don't ask the question of what does God want. We ask the question of what do we want. Here in the text, chapter 17 and verse 1, they get there to Rephidim. And do you notice what the people do? The first thing they do is say there is no water. The first thing that they were focused on is them. And not God. Church. I'm not saying that you're not awesome. And I'm not saying you're not all that in a bag of chips. I'm not saying that all your ideas are bad. I'm not saying that you don't have anything to offer. What I am saying is that none of us, none of us have anything more important than the will of God. None of us. And and so you get here into this text and they get in a moment that there was a question. They get in the moment that there was a need. They, They got in a moment where there was... A lack. They they got there in the moment with doubt. They got they got in the moment of conflict. They got in the moment of a trial. They got in the moment of a testing. They got in a the moment they weren't sure what to do. And they were there, and we will be there. We have been there. We will be there today. We will be there in the future. We will be there. But the question is: when we get in that moment, what questions are we asking? God, what do you want? what I want. I hope and I pray that we as a church that when somebody is writing the ending of the story like in chapter 17 and verse 7 as Moses is writing the ending of the story of this scenario if someone was to write to the ending of the story of this church they would not talk about our lack of faith, they would not talk about our testing of the Lord, they would not talk about our ungratitude, they would not talk about our bitterness they would not talk about our fighting they would not even talk about us because they would talk about our god